you've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about helping you to decide what to watch tonight. Another wonderful episode of The Screen Companion. Today, we're talking alternate cuts that I would argue are better than the original versions people saw in the theater. Today, we're going to talk about Legend, the director's cut, as well as Rocky IV, Rocky versus Drago. Andrew, could you give us a nice little summary of Rocky IV? Rocky IV is the movie where Rocky wants essentially revenge against his Russian opponent, Ivan Drago, after an exhibition match between Drago and Apollo Creed goes horribly wrong. I know that you're a fan of Rocky, is that fair to say? Yes. What for you makes this sequel stand out in the broader franchise? Kind of how cartoony it is. It doesn't quite fit with the more serious dramatic tones of the other movies. John, what is it about Stallone being in film series that have wild tonal changes? You got Rocky, you've got the difference between the first Rambo movie versus even the second one is very different from the first one. Mm -hmm. Why do they do that to him? (laughs) (laughs) Because these are all written and directed by Stallone himself. I think he starts to forget about character and really starts to think about, like, box office draw and stuff like that, maybe. Good point. That's right. I forgot that he's directed and or written most of these. Are you saying I can lay all the blame at his feet? Sure, why not? (laughs) Not that the wackier installments in those franchises are terrible. It's like a hell of his own making, I suppose. It's less about the studios getting involved, and yeah, John, you're right, man. That makes too much sense. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. For you, where does this sequel stand out in the larger franchise? I think this is my favorite one, honestly. It's just so epic and fun. It gets it. Like Andrew said, cartoony, almost. I prefer the more serious tone of the first Rocky, but as far as being fun, Rocky IV is absolutely the funnest. What do you guys imagine or know from viewing this newer cut as being different compared to theatrical? This new cut is much more dramatic. It takes itself a lot more seriously this time around. There's no comic relief. There's no robot. (laughs) (laughs) Even the fight scenes are cut differently to where there's more violence in it. Stallone really wanted to just take a lot of the silly fun out of the original cut. The director's cut fits into the Rocky canon, I think, a little bit better with it toning down the silliness. It's still pretty bombastic. It is. You know, the one-ton punch, I'll never quite get over that. But, you know, there's no happy birthday, Polly. (laughs) (laughs) When I read that this new version was coming out, it sold me immediately when I read it didn't have the robot. Happy birthday, Polly. How about you, John? I like the earlier cuts where they really, like, made it clear why Creed was looking for that exhibition fight. 
it almost made it seem like he was hoping he would die in the ring. He talked more about like losing the glory of his old days and everything, so I really like that. The robot had to go. <laughs> There's no scenario where replacing the robot with more Apollo is a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I noticed right off the bat how much of a callback there was to Rocky Three. I feel like I understood why he put that Clubber Lang stuff at the beginning. Not only as a recap of what had happened in a previous movie, it shows more of the relationship, the ongoing love affair between Apollo and Rocky. <laughs> Let's get into Stallone as an actor. As we talked about before, his first Rocky, his first Rambo, much more serious, more dramatic, far less action. Andrew, do you think he could have developed into a more regarded actor if not for his wonderful physique and action movie roles? It's hard to look at his career for what it is and say that, I think, because we can look at the Rocky sequels. And first one, honestly, is one of my favorite movies ever. Even the second one is still pretty dramatic. And then the third is when it starts going off the rails. But then it picks up again in tone with the sixth. He gets such crap for stuff like Judge Dredd and even like Demolition Man. Because they're just not that good. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) They might not be good, but they're watchable. (laughs) That's bare minimum of what a movie should be. But I think with Creed, he really went back to having those chops. Not just with the Academy Award nomination, but just watching the movie, I remember thinking like, holy crap. This is the best performance he's ever put on. I will never not be angry that he lost that Oscar. Who did he lose to? He lost to Mark Rylance for Bridge of Spies. Oh. Oh. I know, dude. I like that movie, but that performance was forgettable. Yeah. Absolutely. I was pissed. Wait a second. The Academy Awards, are we saying it's not a complete meritocracy? Unfortunately, that's when I learned that's the case. Every campaign starts with for your consideration. It's always, you gotta grease some wheels, I guess. And John, what do you think of his acting overall? I think he is a good actor. I think he's a better actor than he does get credit for. I really liked him in Assassins with Antonio Banderas. I thought those two were magic together. He doesn't get enough credit, especially like the first Rambo and the first Rocky. Like, those are good characters. I feel like what sets him apart from Schwarzenegger is that in a few Stallone roles, like the ones you just mentioned, he's got this wonderful introspective quality that points to there being more behind the man than just his muscles. There's a nice vulnerability that Schwarzenegger brings out once in a while, but not to the extent I feel that Stallone has in some of his pictures. You mean to tell me that you didn't think John Matrix was vulnerable? (laughs) (laughs) I think we can just look at the movie and say, obviously he's not vulnerable. I don't think a bullet could penetrate that skin. (laughs) Never mind emotionally. (laughs) Let me take this short break to thank the listeners, both domestic and foreign. We've reached folks in the UK, Germany, India, Japan, Spain, Brazil. What a pleasure it is to connect with you all. 
Any questions, comments, or recommendations you'd like to give us, send those to thescreencompanion at gmail.com. TSC is available on sites including Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music Podcasts, and even YouTube. Besides listening to each new episode, support The Screen Companion further by getting a digital or print copy of my novel, Traversal, The Weight of Worlds, available on Amazon. Andrew, how about some of your favorite scenes or performances in Rocky IV? One thing I did like about the new cut was Adrian got some more screen time. Adrian's always a treat when she's on screen. And some of the moments with Rocky where, you know, he seemed to be tapping into his first movie mojo when he's talking to his kid. When you think it's right, you got to do it no matter what they say. Dolph Lundgren will always deserve credit for this role. He plays just that Soviet statue perfectly. A very understated role for such a big guy. With how much you've seen this movie, John, do you think it's just enough Drago, or even in this newer cut, do you feel like there should be more? I could always go for more Drago, but I think it's enough. Too much of a good thing and all that. His girlfriend was cut out a lot, I noticed. She had more role in the original, and she was definitely cut out more in this. Which is weird, because uh, what, Bridget Nielsen is good friends with Stallone? Well, she was married to him. Was she? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> ah, didn't do that much research. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say they were married during the movie. <laughs> uh, so it's just better. He went back. I'm going to cut her out. I'm going to get rid of her. I think the best performance in this is Apollo. And I love his little speech about being a warrior. Feels like if there is a point to the movie, it's that. Is that if you have a warrior spirit, you could never really retire. It's the glory of the battle that really gets you off. Between more Drago or more Apollo, which would you prefer? Probably would prefer more Apollo. He's just so charismatic and fun. Yeah, he's a great foil to Rocky's more quiet demeanor. Especially that presser that they do with Drago and Apollo. And Rocky is there at the table as well. And you just see the difference in how they answer those questions. And just how much machismo Apollo has got going on. Apollo, what made you decide to put on an exhibition fight with Drago? Oh, let's call it a sense of responsibility. Responsibility? How? I had to teach this young fellow to box. American style. Is Drago a little inexperienced to be in the same ring? Well, you know, some folks got to learn the hard way. Criticisms for this movie, Andrew. What do you got? Well, one thing that I liked about this director's cut was the fact that it was still the same length, maybe like one or two minutes more of the original. But I also think that it still could have used some fleshing out of Apollo and a little bit more Rocky and Adrian. Maybe a little bit more of also Drago, not so much with spoken lines, but if they had other footage of him, I think that would have helped. It just, it could have used maybe even five or ten more minutes of a deeper character dive, especially into Apollo leading into the fight, because I do feel like the director's cut still kind of rushed it. Apollo bites it early on. Did he need to die for the rest of the story, or could he have just been crippled? 
I think he needed to die. It's the hero's journey. The mentor has to go. They already got rid of Burgess Meredith in the last one. <laughs> so he had to go. Goodbye, Apollo. Sorry, you're amazing. You gots to go. That was one storm Apollo wasn't going to Carl Weather. Aww. <laughs> uh, I'm prepared to burn you at the stake for that. <laughs> Accepted. Andrew, what do you think? I was looking for it on Amazon, and I happened upon a little documentary about the making of the director's cut. It's just Stallone talking to one of his friends who's, like, holding an iPhone and just recording the whole thing. <laughs> and the guy asked him, what would you change if you can go back? And he did say, like, yeah, I wouldn't have killed Apollo. I would have crippled him and had him learn lessons there and be a father figure to Rocky. I think it's interesting. Apollo dying makes sense. It gives Rocky that fire. But for the man himself to say he regrets doing that, it does kind of make you think, like, oh, what could have been if Apollo lived? Mainly, what could Rocky V have been if Apollo lived? Because that movie's terrible. Mm-hmm. Or Creed. So I figure that if you don't kill Apollo in 4, you keep him alive in 5, you kill him off screen like he killed Adrian in 6, then you still have Creed. At some point, he has to die. Yes, but not in the ring. Give him a nice full life with his family in a wheelchair but he still doesn't get to meet Adonis in time for Creed. Apollo's Spectre feels pretty light in the second half. I'm assuming that is the primary reason for Rocky to have those glorious training montages and to fight in Moscow. But his purpose in the plot just doesn't really feel all that significant. If you can't cripple him and have him stick around and have more dialogue and really get into the nuts and bolts of being a warrior and what happens, especially when you're taken out of the fight, how about some flashbacks with him or maybe a vision of him in the ring toward the end? Something to remind the audience why Rocky flew across an ocean to compete with a total newbie. Yeah, I think that's where crippling Apollo could have helped. He could have had the training montage where Rocky's running and pushing him in the snow. That would be hard. Or it's like in Empire Strikes Back where you strap him on like Yoda. <laughs> I was about to say that. Absolutely. Instead of carrying logs, have Rocky pull Apollo's wheelchair up a slope. Yeah. Man, you guys are not big on the whole dignity concept, are you? <laughs> No, I think we're getting more into the richness of their bromance. What is more bromantic than being like, I'm going to help you train, dude, so much so that I'm going to fly to Moscow with you and I'm going to sit in my wheelchair and be a dead weight <laughs> that you have to carry. <laughs> oh, come on, guys. That's so against his character. <laughs> Just think of the banter of Rocky slowing down because he can't run up that slope with Apollo, and Apollo's just calling him names and telling him to go faster. <laughs> oh, and then the color commentary he could have provided once they touched down in Moscow. Considering how jingoistic Apollo was in the Vegas fight, if he could actually have gone to Russia and talked smack to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My boy Rocky's gonna defeat all y'all. Stallion's coming for you. 
Andrew, do you think there's anything worth mentioning this being a sports movie and what tropes it plays into? Be prepared for montages. There's about four or five separate montages in this film. And another interesting little nugget that I learned watching that documentary was that Stallone loves montages, unironically. Oh, no. Because <laughs> this is the director's cut, and he still put quite a few in there. For him, it's just like this economical storytelling, and it makes perfect sense. Imagine if Christopher Nolan did Rocky IV. We would have an hour of just training and discussing what it means to train and discussing what it means to fight. But now we just see him like lifting heavy stuff. He's doing sit-ups and there's 80s music and hearts on fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The editing in this is tight like a six-pack. Absolutely, yeah. I feel like some of those montages were literally back-to-back. -back. I feel like one ended and then maybe Polly said something and then another one started. Oh, yeah. They were within minutes of each other. Yeah. I think you're talking about once he's in Moscow and he's training in the wilderness. There was a long montage, and then I swear he talks to Adrian because she flies out there to be with him, and that lasts for all of a minute, and it goes right into the next montage. <laughs> Which at least he had the presence of mind to go, okay, I can't have a six-minute montage. Let me break this up a little. But you have to remember those two training montages in Russia were also preceded by them landing and having their little zany antics there, which was a flashback montage right before that. <laughs> There's like three montages within just minutes of each other. <laughs> <laughs> Something that felt a little soapy was the montage of Rocky driving in his car after his little tiff with Adrian and you have all those flashbacks to Apollo. <laughs> That's some real romance going on. The scene from 3, where they're running down the beach, and then they just start jumping into each other's arms. Yeah. That came up a lot. In that moment in all the training, when Rocky climbs up the mountain and does his Rocky pose, did it hit you as something of sequelitis, where you go, he ran up the steps... In Philly, how do we make it bigger? Oh, absolutely. Everything's bigger about this movie. He flew to Russia to fight a guy who can punch, what, 2150 PSI? <laughs> it's just, everything's <laughs> over the top. The one-ton punch. <laughs> to show how creepy Google is, I went online and typed in the most generic, like, six-word query about punch strength. And in the list of frequently asked questions and responses, the third one down directly referenced Ivan Drago. <laughs> I'm not surprised. This having come out in 1985, the Soviet Union was obviously still a big thing. John, what do you think about the U.S.-Russia dynamic as portrayed in Rocky IV? It definitely tried to make... USA look more sophisticated than we probably were in the whole Cold War affair. Rocky was just calm and being a good dude, and Drago was kind of a piece of shit the whole time. Like, if he dies, he dies. They showed the Russians being dickheads. They really didn't try and make it fair. At the end of the movie, 
Drago is very much about I fight for me, I want to win. It's really just that crony, the guy who was bossing him around and being a jerk, who is the main Russian propaganda person. I remember when I first saw this movie all the way through, I didn't like how they were using roids on him because I was like, oh, that just cheapens it. But then I remember watching this documentary about Russian athletes and how they were doped up. They still are doped up. But especially during the Soviet Union days, they were doped up, sent out to win. And if they lost, they went to Siberia. So (laughs) it's also like, that's very accurate. The Russians who lost the Miracle on Ice game, and they were just banished essentially because they lost to America. Oh. They drugged up their female Olympians, some of them to an extent, where it was almost like gender reassignment. Yeah. They drug up all their athletes. That was recently. Putin was doing that stuff, too. I find it interesting, John, that you think it makes America look better than the Russians. Because what I took away from it, this viewing, was how it didn't come off as much as American chauvinism as I expected, chiefly because Apollo, as much as I love him, and Carl Weathers just acts the hell out of it in the best way, he comes off as a meathead pig in this movie. He makes a total joke out of fighting the Russian, and it's like, no wonder you got killed. You didn't take it seriously, and it's almost like an indictment, American exceptionalism. It's like, oh, we're just always the best, and he paid the ultimate price because of his hubris. Andrew, did you read the early part of the movie with Apollo? He didn't train at all for his fight. If he trained, it was very minimal. Like in the first Rocky movie where he was just doing all the press stuff and just hyping up the fight. He didn't take Rocky seriously. I don't think he took Drago seriously because at one point he mentioned that he'd seen him fight and that he was really clumsy, implying that he would beat him on technique and stamina because he's not going to go toe-to-toe with him with raw strength. But, you know, he got that one-ton punch and, of course, it just knocked his socks off. There is definitely that American hubris moment because it is just Drago standing in the middle of the ring, confused as to what's going on. He's never seen such pageantry because 20 feet away from him is James Brown singing Living in America, and then behind him up in the rafters is Apollo just dancing. (laughs) (laughs) Like The whole thing was clearly just, I don't want to say he took it as a joke, but it was just all fun and games for him until it got real. What do you think, John? Do you think he trained at all for that fight? There's no way he trained. He did not train. You're absolutely right. He did not train. I think he took the uh, Rocky Three route, where Rocky made it a pageantry, not taking Clubber Lane seriously. I think it's the same thing, and just one-ton punch clocked him. Considering this is Apollo's death movie, I wish they had less character assassination. Him coming off as so irresponsible. If he gives a speech about being a warrior, please at least give me a scene or two where he's talking to Rocky, and we at least see him jumping rope or sparring or something. It's like you just bitched and moaned about not being in the ring anymore and you're retired. Well, here you are, buddy. You're back in the ring. But he squanders it. It doesn't feel like the guy that was moaning about it earlier. What do you guys think is at the heart of this movie? What do you think it's really about? 
I think this one's more about boxing, because the original cut is definitely about the Cold War, very poorly, subtly. It's about championship spirit and competitiveness. It was mentioned earlier of Drago, his character arc, is he's going to fight for himself now. So I think it's about fighting spirit. Every Rocky movie is essentially just a different version of Rocky's taking his shot. Every movie has that moment where it's like, you're going to take the shot, Rock, and he always does. You're going to take the shot against the Soviet Union, Rock? (laughs) (laughs) Going to end the Cold War? If you could change, and I could change, and we can change. (laughs) I appreciate that in the writing of that moment, you can't have him speaking like a Harvard graduate. However, it comes off as so clunky. It's like, well, okay, I guess Rocky just got hit a dozen times in the head. (laughs) By a man who can punch with a ton. I'm not a huge boxing fan, but it struck me as a little weird. As the rounds go on between him and Drago, they land so many punches on each other. It's like, technically, you guys suck. (laughs) Every hit is landing at a certain point. Creed, they do a lot better with the techniques of it. Even in Rocky Six, they're a lot better. If you're going to watch the Rocky movies for boxing realism, you're watching the wrong movies. Every single movie, the fights would be called within the first round. <laughs> they're not defending themselves. That's a clear, you're out. You're out. You can't defend yourself? That means you're already done. Toward the end, Did you guys notice how much blood was in that ring and how literally the referee was covered in blood? (laughs) (laughs) That's more blood than some horror movies. (laughs) I'd like to mention what felt like the heart of this movie in those montages when Drago is training in that high-tech facility and Stallone is just carrying logs and running up mountains, that it's trying to lean into a point of athleticism comes from within and not from a whole bunch of equipment. I always got the impression that in the gym, he wasn't fighting for his life. He was just accomplishing a task. And it was just, do this task of punch harder. Do this task of lift more. Do this task of run faster. Whereas Rocky was survival. I'm in the elements. If I slip off this mountain, I die. Or if I fall asleep here, I don't think those guys are going to save me. It was, uh, to go back to the fighting spirit, he had to fight harder in the elements than Drago ever did. Moving on to Legend, you got a forest dweller named Jack and a princess, Lily, who go unicorn watching. But Darkness, with a capital D, wants to kill the mythical beasts in order to plunge the world into perpetual darkness, with a lowercase d, and vanquish goodness. Jack is enlisted by the creatures of the forest to save the unicorns and his lady love. Andrew, this being your first watch of Legend, any version of it, what were you left feeling? I was feeling validated in the sense that knowing this was a Ridley Scott movie, that it was going to be overly long, and I was correct. And a bit light on story. And a bit light on story. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Absolutely, I agree with you. What did you think of just the overall vibe of the picture? 
I could definitely tell that he had a very specific idea of what fantasy worlds look like. Lots of harsh lighting at times where just everything's glowing and it seems like it doesn't react with the camera lens well. There's glitter everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's sparkly. It's way more sparkly than I remember as a kid. So much glitter. It's like they built the sets in a strip club. So much glitter and chicken feathers. One of the things I was just thinking about watching this movie was, God damn, I would have hated to be part of the crew or an actor on this film. Everything is just flying through the air at all times at like (laughs) rapid speeds. Even when there's a moment when there's really not supposed to be anything, there's just bubbles out of nowhere and I don't know why. (laughs) bubbles I mean I get it because like there's probably some old Disney movies where you see like leaves and stuff being carried by the wind and all that and it does kind of add that magic to the air but they just way overdid it let me point out that the giant sound stage that housed the forest and those trees were made out of plaster and styrofoam with some real branches added on top of it that sound stage was the 007 soundstage. Oh, it would have to be with the sets that huge. That was, at least at the time, the largest stage in Europe. Not for long, it burnt down mid-production. Figures have it at like 90% into production. If it was halfway, that would have been a bigger problem for Ridley Scott. All that shit flying around was very flammable, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) John, have you seen a lot of Tom Cruise movies? <laughs> yeah, who hasn't? Come on now. <laughs> I don't want to assume anything, so having established that, and this being an early Tom Cruise vehicle released between Risky Business and Top Gun, mm-hmm. how do you think his performance compares to his other work? I think he's a little more, I don't want to use the word vulnerable, but he's a little more, uh, I guess, likable? He's charming, but in this one, I think he's more of a uh, boyish charm, whereas the other ones are like confident charm. I love that he wasn't as cocky as his later roles. It's also nice that while he is a main character, he's not the absolute focus in the way that he is once he's got his star power in the 90s. I liked it for what it was. It was just very boyish. I felt like he was channeling a Peter Pan vibe, which went with his character. It was a different role than I've seen him in before, and I did appreciate that. Those were some short shorts that he was flipping around in. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. When he put on the armor and it was just all the way down, it's just like, you might as well have been wearing a dress. (laughs) I don't know why it didn't come with pants. (laughs) When I first saw that it didn't have pants, I was like, what the, what's this gonna... It just attack his legs. <laughs> Sweep him up. Sweep the leg. Sweep the leg. <laughs> we did watch the longer director's cut for this episode. Other differences I'd like to point out. The theatrical cut is only 89 minutes long. It does not stop to smell the roses. Compared to the version we saw, which is around 114 minutes. This version that we saw has a Jerry Goldsmith score, 
And the U.S. theatrical cut had a synth score by Tangerine Dream that also included two songs with lyrics, one of them from John Anderson, the lead vocalist of the band Yes. (laughs) Now, Andrew, since you haven't been exposed to the shorter cut, does that appeal to you, a John Anderson song? (laughs) No. And Tangerine Dream? Um, sounds interesting, but I think if I were to watch this movie again, I probably would try to find the shorter cut just to see the differences and save myself some time. If the theatrical version is an 80s kids fantasy like Willow or NeverEnding Story, I would call this longer cut that we saw closer in tone to a Grimm's fairy tale and being a bit more serious. John, since you have seen both versions, what are your feelings on that? The extended cut, the music definitely lets it age a little better, because the original music is so 80s. (laughs) As notable as the music is in parts of the shorter version, it's a lot less of the score, and I think that's because the Jerry Goldsmith one was supposed to be the version of the score, and then they decided to scrap it. So Tangerine Dream didn't have a long time to make their score, which is why a lot of scenes don't have any music over it. So that surprised me, considering how memorable some of the music is in that shorter version. It definitely plays like something where, if you're watching the shorter version, Andrew, you're going to want to look down in the corner once in a while, expecting to see that MTV emblem. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, what were some of your favorite scenes or performances? that weren't Tim Curry in this. I thank you for that asterisk, because, yeah, he was pretty great as darkness. The scene when those little goblins are using the unicorn horn, just, you know, talk about, like, oh, we're going to be the bosses now, and then darkness shows up. That was a good scene. Mia Sarah, she's my first movie crush, so that's also nice to see her in this movie. How about you, John? What are some of your favorite scenes? Was it Brown Tom when he was on top trying to place the thing? And he's just like, ah, it's nap time. The world can wait. It's like, what are you doing, Brown Tom? <laughs> I thought it was hilarious as a kid. And then, like, rewatching it as an adult, it's like, ah, I get it. That nap's pretty important. <laughs> John, are you saying Brown Town or Brown Tom? Brown Tom. The character's name was Brown Tom. Okay, just making sure. I'm going to call him Brown Town, make him seem like a really cool basketball player. there was a general sense of everyone was very accepting of their own dooms like Andrew was talking about the scene where they're playing with the uh, unicorn horn and the zombie picks up one of the goblins and just walks off the edge and he's like well adios amigos he's just so casual about it and everyone was just cool with their own deaths this movie pulls from so many sources the adios amigos line I had to stop and replay it What the heck is this doing in my fantasy movie? Apparently there's a Latin America somewhere in that fantasy world. I love the merry band that Jack travels with. The dwarves are a lot of fun. They're just the right amount of goofy to keep this from being too dour. Because there are some creepy moments in this movie. And Andrew, what do you think of Tim Curry as Darkness? basically the devil, compared to other portrayals. He really knows how to put everything into something like this, especially, I think, like with all the heavy makeup and everything. 
the design was cool. It reminded me of the devil design in Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny. And you mean they stole it from Legend? Yes, 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 but still. That's just what Dave Grohl looks like. <laughs> All the Tim Curry stuff, he was pretty great. I like the way that it affected his voice to make him sound just extra evil. You disgust me. You're nothing but an animal. <laughs> we are all animals, my lady. Most are too afraid to see it. This is the devil. If you're going to bring up the Red Horn Devil, you only talk about Tim Curry. He is just so iconic here. And he has such a great ability to turn a sneer into a smile and vice versa. Yeah, he's really coming through that makeup, and it's amazing. So part of the performance, because of the makeup and the articulation, is definitely attributable to Rob Bottin. That guy was on fire in the 80s. He does this, he does RoboCop, he does the thing. All beautiful effects. And if we're not going to say he's the best devil ever, then can we agree that he's at least the best devil using prosthetics? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Criticisms for this flick, because I know Andrew will never stop when I let him start, let's start with you, John. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well... (laughs) (laughs) Don't feel like you have to top Andrew. (laughs) This version, I watched a little documentary about it afterwards, talking about how it was specifically edited. The American version was edited because Americans were going to find it boring, so they needed more stuff early on. And I kind of agree with that. It breathed. It took its time. Okay, where's Tim Curry? Give me some Tim Curry early. Give me some other stuff. I think they took out the love story. There was no love story in this version. Tom Cruise has got to get the girl. That's not how you make movies. Come on, people. (laughs) We're talking about a one-shot difference at the very end where he's running off into the sunset with her, and in the long cut, it's just him by himself. That really bothered you? He's just like, bye. He just ditched her there. I get that. He's like, ah, you basically got the whole world killed. Um, See you later. Well, she's coming back tomorrow. (laughs) Every day with those people. (laughs) I want to put a positive spin on some of the boringness. I definitely felt it along with you guys. I was a bit more accepting of it. It's paced more like a 50s movie. Because they spent money on all the sets and everything, so you got to have long, beautiful shots. It's not all the zippy, poppy editing like in Rocky IV. Ridley Scott is such a visualist. It's almost like if you don't let those shots linger, it's a total waste of all the production value they've put into it. What also makes it feel pretty long is that for a Jerry Goldsmith score, Andrew, do you feel like this might be one of his weaker scores? When I saw his name come up in the opening credits, I thought like, oh, okay, all right, score's going to be pretty good, and then just there's nothing sticking out about it. It seemed kind of generic fantasy. It does achieve a fairy tale tone that sets it apart from the shorter version, but ranked against old Disney movie scores, 
that I feel like Goldsmith is going for in this, it would be toward the bottom of the list. So I do want to give you, Andrew, your time to shine. What other criticisms might you lob at this film? At the end of the day, a lot of it are just my criticisms of Ridley Scott's movies in general. Not all of them, but a good chunk of the ones I've seen. He lingers on shots too long. I feel like you could cut a good 10, 15 minutes of the movie by just making certain scenes shots shorter. Where it wouldn't affect the story, it doesn't affect the characters. I get it. There's a bunch of stuff flying through the air, and she's frolicking. (laughs) It looks great, minus all the glitter. It's almost like an assault on your eyes at times, where there's just (laughs) so much happening at once. (laughs) So many shafts of light. Then you're just in a room where the character's in the background, walking towards the foreground, just surrounded by all this opulent crap. Like, you just don't know where to look. (laughs) That's just what bothers me about it. The visual spectacle of it all, it's amazing to look at. I just wish they toned it down. I feel like every time I watch this movie, I pick up new details expressly because it's like the borders of a Mad Magazine comic book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's just so much going on. That's what Darkness was selling. He doesn't have any of the opulent shit there. He's just like, we're just going to have a nice fire and none of the shit flying through the air and none of these weird rainbows everywhere. That's what I'm selling. And that's why you probably got people on board. Even the pillars in his palace or whatever were very opulent. (laughs) And I'm just just like, what the hell is this? And it got to just be visually too much. Oh my god, I would have loved to pay some money and just be able to take a tour of those sets. Yeah. Me too. But I would also still say, take it down a notch. (laughs) One moment I can think of that really illustrates your point when Lily is talking to Darkness and he wants her to sit in that chair watching this in Blu-ray I was straining even with the extra clarity to see the detail in the chair itself because it's all one color even though it's got a lot of sculpting involved this is the first time I realized there's actually hands carved into the thing that are moving and it's like Jesus Ridley Stop it at a certain point. Yeah. John, what do you think stands out about this compared to his other movies? Tim Curry. I mean, come on. (laughs) Tim Curry's really saving him here. (laughs) People like the actors have to save the day for his movies? Yeah, let's say that. This gets controversial here. Well, I want to be a little bit more positive in comparing this to his other movies. His early stuff, which I would count this as being part of, he did Alien 79, Blade Runner in 82, and then Legend in 85. It's just so visually creative. I can't think of any of his movies in the 90s or later that were as ambitious, giving us new creative visuals. If you want to consider his historical epics ambitious, I'm pretty sure everyone would say Gladiator. You're doing a historical epic, you can always go back to what the architecture was and the clothes were at the time to inform decisions. So with this one, it is just pure imagination. So I would agree with you on that. This movie, there is a lot of creativity behind it. 
the biggest thing for me that sets it apart from his other movies is just a sense of whimsy that this one has. Even though it's a darker fairy tale, it's still a much more lighthearted movie than his others. I know you didn't like the chicken feathers and all the glitter, Andrew, but did you feel like it felt like a real environment or did it give off too much set vibes to you? Oh, no, it absolutely felt real to me. It was a very well done set. Being a fairy tale, John, do you think there's a moral to the story? No, honestly, no, I don't think there is. It just seemed spectacle for the sake of spectacle. Even when darkness died, did it undo anything evil in the world? No, there wasn't true triumph. They fixed one horse, really. Maybe the very final thing that happens in the shorter version is we get a reprise of darkness cackling, and it fades to black. (laughs) Oh. Almost like sequel bait, or like evil never dies, but to me it came off as just silly. Almost like it's the actor going, ha 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 ha, I'm the only thing you're going to remember about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the best part. (laughs) Was that supposed to be him dying at the end, or was he just like, what the hell was that? (laughs) He was just sent into a void. Like, if he wants darkness, why didn't he just go there? Why did he have a void into outer space in his palace? He's just chilling with his void. In his subterranean palace? That's the thing, it's his dad's house, right? He kept calling him to his dad. That's where his dad lives. He's just trying to get out of his dad's house. That really hits home in 2022. Yeah, right? (laughs) He's like, I'm sick of living with my parents. I'm better than this. I'm going to go chill in a mirror and try and get a girlfriend. Well, I think in this universe, they went with some cosmology similar to a Moby song where everybody's made of stars. (laughs) (laughs) They pull from too many sources and they make too many references that they forgot of actually having a point to a fairy tale. If I could try to point to something close to it, maybe it's look, don't touch. Lily goes against Jack's wishes and wants to frolic with the unicorns. I don't think... Oh no, there is a line where one of the goblins says they wouldn't have been able to capture one of the unicorns if it didn't stop long enough for her to touch it. Mm -hmm. So I guess it is her fault. She's the worst. Yeah, she's really willful and mischievous at the beginning. I'd like to think that by the end of the movie, she'd heed a warning not to touch the next mythical animal she spots in the forest. Yeah, it's all fun and games until she sees like a centaur or something. Slap him across the face. (laughs) (laughs) What if after hanging out with a satyr that is darkness, she developed a taste for them and started wanting Jack to introduce her to more woodland creatures? (laughs) (laughs) Got any more of them friends you can bring over there, Jack? What's going on? We really didn't mention Gump, the wood elf. He's got goat-like ears. Maybe she might be into that. (laughs) Let's get into a bit of general discussion. So, both of these movies were originally released in 85. Andrew, do you see any similarities between them? The only things I would say that hold them together, it's just the literal look of the film. Like, just the colors and everything. That's really the only connecting thing that I can spot between the two of them. Maybe that. I don't know. I don't see really anything between them. Good triumph over evil, but... That's just every movie. Huh. 
I took away from seeing these in close succession that they really get by on their style and are emblematic of the 80s being style over substance because I wouldn't say either movie has a particularly meaty plot. I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah. They are definitely stylish. And Legend is considered a cult classic, and Rocky IV remains one of Stallone's more popular films. John, why do you think that is? I think, like we said, Legend's a classic movie, but it really hasn't aged as well. Whereas Rocky, it's the classic Russia versus America that made like all the Bond movies great, or every espionage movie great. And picks up some relevance with all the Russia-Ukraine stuff happening right now. Touche, yes. Talking about alternate cuts, Andrew, can you think of any honorable mentions or versions of movies to avoid? I remember being told once that the movie Daredevil with Ben Affleck, that the director's cut is the good version. It's not. Because <laughs> <laughs> Ben Affleck is still in that version. I haven't seen the theatrical cut, but I remember, like, oh yeah, watch the director's cut. It's a lot better. And it was still terrible. <laughs> I want to point out, Andrew, that unlike myself and probably John, you made the right decision, the smart choice, not to see Daredevil in theaters, and then you completely undid it by watching the longer cut. Uh, yeah, you ruined everything. Yeah, but that's what everyone told me it was better. <laughs> now, guys, everybody's favorite part, TLDL, too long, didn't listen. I'm going to ask a series of questions. What's better, Rocky IV as part of a sports movie marathon or Legend in a fantasy movie night? Rocky IV. Rocky IV. Who is better in the 80s, Tom Cruise or Sylvester Stallone? Ooh, I'm going to go with the Cruise. I'm going Stallone. Which movie would you rather watch with your significant other? Rocky IV. <laughs> Legend. <laughs> she definitely had a Mystery Science Theater-esque reaction to Legend. Is Legend better in the Ridley Scott retrospective or Tom Cruise series? Tom Cruise. Uh, I'm going to say Ridley Scott. If someone's only going to watch three films that include the Rocky Balboa character... Does Rocky IV count as one of them? I have to... Oh, man. Um, shoot. I really have to think about that. If you have your answer, John, please go ahead. I'm saying yes. Do you count Creed as part of the Rocky canon? Rocky appears in it, so yes. Shoot, that's what makes it hard. Um, I know, that's why I said it. Because <laughs> you have to include Rocky one, and I feel like you have to include Creed. Well, uh, Drago's kid was the bad guy in, what, Creed 2? He was, but, eh, I just don't know what I would put in the middle there if it would be either Balboa or 4. I would probably go with 4 because Creed and Balboa both deal with aging Rocky. So, yeah, I'll go with, yes, yes, you have to include Rocky 4. Which movie benefits more from the 80s-ness of the filmmaking? 100% Rocky IV. <laughs> That's no contest. It's Rocky. <laughs> What's a better performance, 
Tim Curry as Darkness or Tim Curry as It? I will say Darkness because I have not seen It. Oh, that's like the only reason to watch It. I have seen It, but I think Darkness still resonates more. It still stays in my head. Here's another what's better. The set design in Legend or the music choices in Rocky IV? Set design. (laughs) It's a set design. Now, our final question, maybe the most important question of the night. Would Tom Cruise be a better Ferris or Matthew Broderick a better Jack? Oh, wow. I think... I honestly think that Cruz would be better as Ferris. Huh, I don't know. I'm going Broderick as Jack. Yeah, because I don't see Cruz being that lovable charming. I feel like we have already seen this play out to some extent. Maybe you'll disagree with me, but I was thinking Tom Cruise in Risky Business and then Broderick in Ladyhawk. I haven't seen either one of those. I've seen them. Lady Hawk got me in trouble with my mom once because she was watching it and I walked in and saw Rucker Howe. I was like, oh, is this Lady Hawk? And she's like, how the fuck did you know that? And she started like getting angry for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a weird day. Um, that went better than I thought because I thought the story would have been that she walked in on you. Oh, no. <laughs> what do you know Rucker Howe in this house? Oh, Michelle Pfeiffer. She's so hot. <laughs> well, any final thoughts from you guys as we wrap this up? You know, watching Legend and how much they talk about how great darkness is, like all the evil, just like, I don't want the sun anymore. They all had lighting sources with them for some reason. They always had a torch or something every time it got dark out. of was like, what kind of world are you going for? You're just going to get annoyed eventually that the sun never comes up. <laughs> I noticed that in the very first sequence where he's just talking about how he loves darkness and there's a flame like, A huge fire. (laughs) Giant fire (laughs) lighting the room and heating it, too. (laughs) Yeah, he seemed perfectly happy. Since you've seen Rocky IV so much, John, what's going to be your preferred cut? What are you going to go back to and watch on, like, a yearly basis, or are you going to switch between them? I'll probably switch between them. The next time I watch it will still be the original, because that robot. Gotta keep going back. And you love Polly. Polly, oh man, Polly had more screen time. He was a goofus in the original cut, though. So it's just like, do I want Polly respect or do I want Polly screen time? <laughs> <laughs>